Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I've always been willing to fail, to make mistakes, and I've been resilient enough that I know that even if I fail... I just get back up and I've learned something. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Corey Peterson. Corey is joining us from Chandler, Arizona. He is the CEO and founder of of Kahuna Investments. They focus on purchasing stable, income-producing, multifamily, and student housing opportunities. Corey's portfolio consists of over 3,000 units valued at over $250 million. Corey is also a repeat guest, so if you haven't caught him the first time, Google Joe Fairless and Corey Peterson. Corey, welcome back, and thank you for joining us. Excited to be asked back and invited back, and really excited to talk about some new stuff that I think is happening. The one thing about this market is it just kind of keeps changing. You're not kidding. Let's deep dive into that. Talk to me about your portfolio pre-COVID, post-COVID, and what it is today, and then we'll dive into finding deals. Yeah. Pre-COVID, we were in student, which, listen, being in student housing during COVID was almost a five-finger death punch. To say that it was hard is an understatement. And basically nobody went to school. So they didn't go to the student housing. And that was really hard. And that represented 70% of our portfolio. And the smaller schools, the D2 schools, the 8,000, 9,000, 10,000 kids schools, they really declined a lot. Now your D1s, people still went to D1s and stayed if you were in a good location. But for us, That was 70% of our portfolio. It was tough. During that, though, we decided to pivot and buy into the pain. I think we talked about that a little bit on our last show, is you bought into the pain. So I purchased more student housing. Why? It was at a discount. I knew what I was doing, and we bought three or four deals in the right markets. And coming out of it, it's been a blessing. We're like, oh my God, now interest rates and all the things are crazy are going on. But we still are getting 
great rents with parental guarantees. So that's been nice. And the other part of during pre-COVID or pre-COVID, it was gangbusters. On our regular multifamily stuff, rents and growth were crazy. Slowed down. It actually ramped up even a little bit more during COVID. And now we're to the spot where rents were not really went down. They've just stayed they flatlined, which is okay. And the two markets, they've slightly decreased. Or we've had to put some bigger incentives to get leased up a little bit. And those properties are in Arizona. And Arizona is a fairly good market in Tucson. But most of our properties are based in the Midwest, Ash. And in the South. So I got to ask you, office right now is where student housing was during COVID. Do you have any interest in buying suburban office? I would if I understood it. So here's the challenge. I'm not that smart. (laughs) I'd like to think that I am, but I do a couple things really well. And so I've learned to say no. And, And honestly, as entrepreneurs and people listening to the show right now, the hardest thing as a, a serial entrepreneur like me and you, Bash, is two letters and one word, no. Because as an entrepreneur, when you really understand entrepreneurship, we can do anything we put our mind to. It just takes time and resource. But sometimes you have to be, no, Corey, you don't do that. Do you want to create another business? No. <laughs> Corey, during the COVID lockdowns, We all saw the student housing complexes go for pennies on the dollar, and they were toxic. How much of a struggle was it for you to dive in and start acquiring more? It was difficult, but I understand the principles of it. So what I did when I bought the new properties is I made sure I bought more D1s than D2s for sure. And then the president made sure that we were well capitalized to get through the COVID piece. And we bought it on the second year of COVID. We started buying into the pain in the second year of COVID, knowing that it's probably going to wean out eventually. We started to feel the claws buried back a little bit. So it wasn't as crazy. We're Everybody was trying to figure out how to make it work, how to get into schools. But was it difficult? For the first year that we bought into the pain, yes, it was difficult. Everybody's wearing masks. We're dealing with colleges and universities. Very, I won't call it left-leaning, but the philosophies around college is you got to understand the game that you're playing and who your audience is. So we had to really mitigate a COVID policy, very stringent. So we did that. And then eventually it just went away. And now that it's went away, Ash, I look pretty smart. Corey, right now we've got tons of investors sitting on the sidelines trying to figure out what the Fed's going to do next. I feel like you got too much energy to sit back and wait. What are you doing now? I think it's a shame to wait. I think you can almost make money in every market if you understand the game. And if you understand what is your exit, what is your out? And I've long stopped trying to time the market because if I was going to do that two or three years ago, what about nothing? Because insurance went up 100% on properties. And then now we in COVID, the interest rates, everything that most investors bought two, three years ago has been pain and suffering. That's what I call it. Survive to 25. We have two more years to get out of this thing. But I go back to the fundamentals. You just got to put yourself out there, Ash, and just buy. 
because you never know where that home run's going to be. You just don't. But you just buy on the fundamentals, which in my opinion is cash flow. Still to this day, I know cash flow. That's why it's so hard for me to buy in markets like Arizona, even though I do find buying Tucson a little bit, but it's really hard for me to buy in Phoenix. I would love to buy in Phoenix more often, but my model says cash flow and not just hope for appreciation because in a downturn economy, if you can cash flow, you survive. If you don't cash flow, you give your property back to the bank. And what are you doing to find deals today? Going to the banks, Ash. Talk to me. Let's hear more. So what's happening right now is a big transition because all of us, including me, were buying with these bridge loans that some of us had rate locks and put on them and stuff like that. But those rate locks are coming due. And when they come due, you either have to come up with a lot of new capital or sometimes they go back to the bank because you can't. And they go back into receivership. So I have been really hitting the auction.coms, all the auction sites. And this is the other part of this. Who knows about these properties? The property management companies. They know the ones that are hurting or are in receivership. So I've been door knocking on a bunch of those receivership type management companies and make an introduction. But I just so happened to have a property that was right next to my property that I own. It was on auction.com. The broker absolutely just happened to reach out to me. I didn't see it on this one. And it was a property that I own. It's right behind mine. It marries my property so nicely. I'm like, oh my God. So what I found is those sites are not hard to operate with. The only challenge, Ash, is you have to have a lot of cash up front because if you win the bid, Typically, you have to put up a million dollars or pretty close to that in 24 hours. Corey, can you explain to the best ever listeners what a property in receivership is? Yes. Property in receivership is now a bank-owned asset. It went through the foreclosure process, and the bank is now owning and operating assets. And here's what I know about bank-owned properties. First of all, do banks like to be in the property management business? They don't. And not only that, Ash, they will spend very generously on things that really don't matter, but staffing. They will overstaff properties. And management companies that do this, they know this. The ones that work for receiverships, they know the bank has a certain type of profile. They want no issues. They want no deferred maintenance. They want nothing that they can get sued with because they now own this asset. So anything that was a trip hazard or a potential liability to get their big bank sued, they take care of a lot of those things. So buying a bank asset usually comes with a very large expense basis that they're currently running that most of the times as a normal operator, you can squeeze that down quite a bit, which leaves a lot of meat on the table. The question's been asked a lot on how you find properties under receivership. You mentioned going to property management companies, going to receivers. Have you had luck going to actual lenders? I personally have not had that opportunity or luck yet, but I still ask. If I asked more often, I would probably get it more. If I was that woodpecker, just keep on pecking on the side of the thing, doors will open. So the consistency piece on that is just 
time and effort. If you're consistently knocking and asking, what do you have? What do you have? Usually you'll find something. What's the profile of the properties that you're looking for today? Typically between 10 million to, we'll call it $35 million, maybe $40 million property. It has to be a hundred units plus. And obviously we'll do a student deal. That's fine for us, but this still has to be a hundred doors, which usually translates to about 300 beds. Like 300 beds is about the right size for a student property deal. And we're looking for a micro value play. So in other words, right now in this marketplace, the play for me is I'm just trying to buy something at today's rate that I can cash flow, that I can hold on for about five years and then hit this refi button that's going to make me a lots of money. So I'm trying to put five-year debt on purpose, even though normally I would try to be getting 10-year debt, but 10-year debt at the rates right now don't make any sense. So Ash, the deal that I just got under contract, that is at REO, my interest rate is 8.67%. Yeah, man. Welcome to and, the club. It is what it is. Yeah. And it cash flows. It has to pencil for the bank to sell it. How did you find that deal? Auction.com. But the broker had reached out to me and said, you need to look at this property because he called just all the owners around it doing his due diligence and come to find out there was only five bidders for that property. I like that broker, someone that's hungry. Yeah. He was just doing his job. And you know, what's the funny part is I blew him off. I blew him off three or four times. And finally I opened the email and I was like, oh my God, this is right behind my property. And then I got really interested. And here's the funny thing is I always believe that a good broker will give you a little bit of insider information if you establish the right connection with them. So that's always been my biggest thing that I'm pretty good at, Ash, is that broker relation. Making a friend as quick as humanly possible to where he knows me, likes me. He understood my business model. He knew that I had bought in the marketplace before. And I just flat out told him, I was like, listen, his name was John. I was like, John, I'm your guy. I'm the guy that's going to buy this property. It makes total sense for me to buy it. And he's like, yeah. So then I started asking some other questions, which was, how many bidders are they? What have they pre-registered their top bid to be? Great questions to ask. They won't always tell you, but they might. Yeah. There's some tricks to getting around those answers. Yeah. yeah. Hot or cold, right? Yeah. Is it north of blank do you think or do you think this will put me in the running to get the deal done yeah get yeah. as much inside info as you can and just get all yeah. the edge you can now the only downside to buying an auction type of property is you don't really get a due diligence they give you a pca a property condition assessment report it's pretty detailed and it's current so you can see pretty good insight from there but you don't get to do your normal, I'm sending my whole team and scoping everything. You also don't get all the financials that you would have if this was a normal sale, right? So how do you Correct. underwrite these deals? Because you have such Well, limited... they gave me enough. So this receiver had owned the property for three years. So I had three years of T12s, which I normally wouldn't get. I normally you'd get, this is what you get, whatever the bank has. A lot of times they're not in receivership for that long. So I actually had a decent amount. And the other part is they have a very short wick. You have to close within usually typically 60 days or they'll give you 30 days and you got to pay another half a million dollars to get a 30 day extension. So it's a very quick raise. So 
we put this property under contract in November. So now it's the 29th. We have another 30 days till we close. So in that time period, we've had to put together a PPM pitch deck, all the stuff required, get all the LLCs, bank accounts opened up. We are just now marketing this project to potential investors. Corey, I know that you've got numerous investors that have done deals with you before. When you interact with new investors, what are you finding? Is their appetite, their reluctancy to get into real estate in this market? Now, Ash, this is going to sound really contrary to probably what the mainstream media and honestly what most people are doing. We've never had that issue. Our people come from the stock market. They have found us in one of our ways that we out we go out there through LinkedIn, lots of different places, through books, through education. They are more interested in the operator than they are top end line. They want to make a return. Don't get me wrong, Ash. They want to make a good return. But they're used to 6 to 8% in the stock market. So anything above that is wonderful for them. So I don't get as much reluctance. Now, I will say this, the caveat on that, some of my more savvy investors, they're really looking at the deal and they're looking at how I'm underwriting the deal, Ash, meaning what cap rate are we selling it for? What are my assumptions in the deal? They really want to understand why are you saying you're getting a 6% increase? Because 6% is pretty strong. So on this particular deal, we were able to demonstrate very clearly because I own another property that's actually closer to the college. I actually set the market with my property because I'm the closest to the college. So I'm like, based on this, this one's right behind me. They're undervalued because I'm getting $750 per bed for, for a two-bedroom, two-bath, and this property is getting $650. And they shouldn't. It's just bank-owned. They don't care. They're just trying to not ruin the ship. So there's potential there. And I think people are looking for you to quantify your pitch deck. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. If you want to do bigger and better commercial real estate deals, Take your real estate capital raising efforts to new heights with syndicationattorneys.com. With more than 20 years of real estate and investing experience, syndicationattorneys.com goes beyond just creating legal documents. They educate you on ethical and legal capital raising strategies. Plus, they offer a host of free resources, including their best-selling capital raising books, numerous articles, and their popular podcast, Raise Private Money Legally. At syndicationattorneys.com, they do more so you can do more more deals, bigger deals, and better deals. 
So if you want attorneys with premier experience helping syndicators and fund managers raise capital, go to syndicationattorneys.com today to schedule an appointment and unlock your maximum capital raising potential today. That's syndicationattorneys.com. This offer is not available to Florida residents. Corey, in my experience, and I do non-residential commercial, anytime a receiver owns a property, it's heavily neglected. They don't even pay attention to it. They don't pay the bills. They don't try to lease it up. Have you had challenged properties where the receiver, they don't know what they're doing, they're not taking care of anything, and the property's just going downhill? I've never bought one like that. Now, maybe this is because I buy more student, and it has to be because they know they get one shot at leasing up for student. Yeah. And if not, they're vacant the whole year. So they pay attention a little bit more. I don't know why. Well, I know why, because they know if they don't do it, it's going to really negatively impact their bottom line. When you finance those properties, do you often use the lender who currently owns the note? I ask. Most of the time, though, we just go back to our third party. I usually use a broker most of the time, every time I do a deal. And the challenge with student housing is unless you're a D1, 20,000 students, Freddie and Fannie will not play in your marketplace. So we do a lot of CMBS. Used to be local banks or credit unions. They play pretty well. But you're still looking at 35% down. So you got to raise a decent amount of capital. You've got to be good at that. So that's the downside is the banking. But the upside is mom and dad guarantee the rents. And we have a property in North Carolina, ECU, East Carolina University. That's a D1 school, the Pirates. And I would be really hard pressed to screw that property up. It's going to lease up each and every year with or without me. My team is good, but it would lease without a great staff because it's just in demand. So that's the beauty of buying in the right marketplace with that. Over the years, there have been colleges that will form a real estate department and they'll start buying, building student housing. Have you encountered that? And is that unfair competition for you? It is. So here's another example of what they'll do. This is what we've seen in some of the other smaller D2 schools. Enrollment has been declining for a good amount of years. Right? So the one thing with students is proximity to college is location, location, location. If you're far away, I would never buy that asset. It's got to be within a half a mile to the college, or it's probably not a deal that I would be interested in. But we've seen where on one property that we own, they used to have mandatory freshmen live on campus in the dorms. And last year, they announced beginning of August that freshmen and sophomores are now living in the dorms. Now, it backfired on them. This year, they are reverting and saying uh, no longer the case. Why did that backfire? Because they could not handle all the students. They were putting three students in a dorm. Three. Two is hard enough because they're already on top of each other to put a third. Parents were so upset. Now, I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to make sure their dorms are filled up because that's a cost to them. What they now had to do, they give vouchers. So now there's a workaround for it. And of course, they don't want to tell you, but it's there. And so our job is to educate the masses. And so we're parked outside those dorms every day with college kids handing out flyers. And those vouchers are good for 
using the room and board money towards private apartments? Yeah, and not vouchers, but we give them the information of here's a form you have to fill out to get out of not having to go to the dorms. They make you fill out a form and get approval. Everybody gets approved, by the way, unless they don't know about it. So our job is the education of it. Do you ever use college students to disseminate that information? Yeah, absolutely. That's part of our strategy. We call them CAs, community ambassadors. These are our college kids that live with us, that they work part-time and their job is to go pollute, or I say pollute, go populate, go out into the college itself and go mingle and bring brochures and put flyers on cars, all that stuff. Ambassadors. So the colleges probably call them infiltrators. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, the real truth is when you do it right, you work well with the college. They like us. We invest in their football programs. Usually we're buying ads for that. We're trying to be sponsors. We know that our job is to get the coaches and athletic director, AD, to like us. Our job is to try to keep their kids safe. Does that make sense? Yeah. Every coach, their biggest fear is there's someone's going to have an all-nighter and party it up. So we try to mitigate that as best we can. That We try to have what I call clean, safe, disciplined properties. And the discipline is we try to shut down the party in as much as we can. How do you do that? We have patrol officers on site. Different colleges have a higher level. We'll put it like that. Every college is a little bit different. So we figure out what the right amount is for that and who we need. But the job is just to mitigate. We don't mind it happening because it's going to happen. It's just that we don't want all of a sudden there's now 100 people in a room. We had a property. We bought it this way, but somebody had a party on the second story and everybody was just jump, jump, jump. <laughs> a couple of three, 400 people and the whole floor caved in. Whoa. Yeah. The rafters, everything. So it, it was a big claim. So we had to put a policy in place to say no more than 15 people in your door. All right. So you're not instituting quiet hours. You're just making sure things don't get crazy. Yeah. But we also created separate buildings that are your graduate buildings. And to live in this section, you have to sign additional waiver of quiet hours. Got it. Right. Because your grads, they don't want to deal with that crap. So part of your job is probably going to a bunch of college football games and writing off the bills, huh? Yeah. It's a horrible time. Corey, did you get caught with interest rates rising? Did you have enough rate caps to cover you? Yeah, I got caught. I'm refining three properties this month, January 5th. Oh my God. Can't even wait. <laughs> and you're... I'm in cash management on two properties, Cash. Even though I have a rate lock, they are not counting the rate lock money towards my DCR test. So because of that, even though my property is 195 and one's 93% and profitable, but they're not using the rate lock money that was required to put into and pays my property for this bridge loan that I have. They put me in cash management. I've been in cash management for almost a year. And for anybody that's listening, what that means is all your rents go to the bank and the bank only gives you your expenses. And only the expenses that you put in in the initial part of your loan when you said, here's my budget. So if you didn't budget it right, you're screwed. You're going to be negative because they're only going to give you what was on that paper. Corey, you use brokers, CMBS, Fannie Freddie type loans. If you had used local lenders, do you think that would have happened? No, 
Now, local lenders don't do it. Right. But you, I would have had to personally guarantee them as well. So, like a lot of people, the reason we were all using bridge notes, because they gave you so much money for the CapEx. And looking back, we learned a lot. It was a good lesson to learn out of this market cycle that will probably help dictate what we do in future markets, even though we'll just go and raise the money privately. And now that we've become better money capital raisers, even though the cheap money would theoretically be cheap money in those bridge loans when they were low, it was great. But when they swung, it's terrible. And we would have been better just to have a locked in a fixed rate long-term way back then. And that's the beautiful thing about 2020 vision looking backwards, it's crystal clear. But you got to take those lessons and say, okay, what I learned from it, would I do it again? On some deals, I probably would still do it the same way. We've been able to get out of all our bridge debts. And the only reason we were able to so far is we have really hit our business plans. Meaning we've been able to raise the value enough to get out and get into notes. I have one property that I actually don't have a rate cap and it wasn't required. And my rates are now 10.4%. It is ginormous. And we refi that on the 5th of January and it goes down to 6.75. And I am doing the happy dance, <laughs> right? Because we are now going to be super profitable. Did I hear you say that in the future, you're going to look at buying deals all cash? No, just fixed terms, fixed rates, and just raise all the CapEx all cash or through investor proceeds. Corey, what's your advice to people that they got hit? The rate caps expired, interest rates are taking a toll on them, and maybe they're underwater. What's your advice to somebody in that situation? Negotiate like hell with your bank. Talk to them, communicate, over-communicate. Ask for everything. Ask what you can do. Get lean. You need to get as lean and mean. And we had to do that during COVID. When COVID happened on my students, uh, forbearance on one property that I had to do, and we cut everything that was non-essential. Just had to. And it was just survive. It was just survival mode. And then I think we've all had to get good. I have one capital call. You're going to have to get good at capital call. And that's the reality that a lot of investors have had to face. So that's the stigmatism in what you referenced earlier, Ash, is a lot of people are a little bit gun shy from multifamily because as investors, a lot of them haven't got paid. And this is just one of those weird market cycles where everything's kind of went weird and crazy. But the only caveat to that is what I've learned is that if you hold real estate long enough, it always works out. Now, to get investors in that mindset, that's a whole different trait, and you have to communicate with them. And it's not always the greatest news, and it's not always the news they want to hear, but it's the news that you've got to deliver. And then you've got to work very, very hard judiciously in the endeavor to make them whole. Corey, you've built an absolute empire. What keeps you going? I don't know what else I would do. I love coming to work, Ash. People say, when's enough? I get this ask to me a lot. They're like, what are you doing? I look for things to drive me, I guess. I don't know, but my kids are getting ready to go out of the house. So my new kids have been my employees. We took on property management. I've got 49 extra kids. And what I found is I like it. I enjoy 
the process and having them a building culture. So the part of what I really want is I'm driven, Ash, I want to create a family office. I want my company to be here long after I'm gone. And I don't know why, but I would like to think that because I want to take care of people, my staff. I want to help them grow and, and obtain what they want and maybe eventually give that business to them or a piece of it to them. And also, I think my son, he's 18. He wants to do real estate and he'll eventually probably come into my shoes. There's still a long road he has to travel. But yeah, I want to become a family office where we eventually when we sell all the assets that we've done with investors, now we'll probably always partner with our investors that we have now, but there's going to be a day, maybe four to five years, when we start selling some of our big assets, we'll reinvest in deals just with our own money and be our only investor. And I think that's when things really change. Corey, when you look at other syndicators, other business owners that are just turning wheels and not really getting ahead, and here you are, a master of scaling, what are most people doing wrong? I think they don't ask enough questions. I've just been curious. I've always been curious to say, how can I? And then I asked lots of people for advice and asked questions. Not all the advice was good, but I kept finding great people that I had a lot of respect for that did it and asked them, how do they do it? I wrote a book called Copy Your Way to Success, and it is my mantra. I'm not that smart, Ash, but I'm a master copier. I just wrote that down. <laughs> Copy Your Way to Success. <laughs> yeah, and that's really kind of a superpower, right? Being able to continuously ask for help and advice. It is. It really is. It, there's no ego in it. I've let my ego go out the door. I don't have an ego. I don't care. Who am I, right? But I'm always the one that says, here I am, send me. And I've always been willing to fail, to make mistakes. And I've been resilient enough that I know that even if I fail, I just get back up and I've learned something. I take that learning and I say, okay, we won't do it that way, but I'm going to keep trying and I'm going to get around to my goal because I see it. Clearly, I have to sometimes dodge all the things that come the way, but my eyes are always focused on my, my real goal, which is a family office. I know that is. Corey, thank you again for your time today. It's always great talking to you. How can the best ever listeners reach out to you? I would love to give everybody a book. I just wrote a book. And I think this is really relevant. It's called Trust But Verify, The Passive Investor's Guide to Evaluating Real Estate Syndicators. I wrote this for the investors because I feel like sometimes... They don't know the questions to ask people like us to really do it in a way that's meaningful. So to get the book, if you'll text the word TRUST to 480-500-1127. So the word TRUST to 480-500-1127. Follow the prompts. We'll send it to you for free. It's a great little book that I think opens up that world of here's what you should be looking for if you're looking and wanting to vet syndicators like you and I, Ash. That's awesome, Corey. Very gracious of you as well. Again, thank you for your time again. Always great having you on here. Thanks, Ash. Appreciate it, brother. Best ever listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so... 
Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.